Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.blogsome.com. Today's reading is by Dale Hujic of SpunWithTears.com. The name of the book is Childhood by Leo Tolstoy, Chapter 7 through 9. Chapter 7. The Hunt. At the head of the cavalcade rode Turka on a hogback roan. On his head he wore a shaggy cap, while with a magnificent horn slung across his shoulders and a knife at his belt, he looked so cruel and exorable that one would have thought that he was going to engage in bloody strife with his fellow man, rather than to hunt a small animal. Around the hind legs of his horse, the hounds gambled like a cluster of checkered restless balls. If one of them wished to stop, it was only with the greatest difficulty that it could do so, since not only had its leash fellow also to be induced to halt, but at once one of the huntsmen would wheel around, crack his whip, and shout to the delinquent, Back to the pack there. Arrived at a gate, Papa told us and the huntsman to continue our way along the road, and then rode off across a cornfield. The harvest was at its height. On the further side of a large, shining yellow stretch of cornland lay a high, purple belt of forest, which always figured in my eyes as a distant, mysterious region, behind which either the world ended or an uninhabited waste began. This expanse of cornland was dotted with swaths and reapers, while along the lanes where the sickle had passed could be seen the backs of women as they stooped among the tall, thick grain or lifted armfuls of corn and rested them against the shocks. In one corner a woman was bending over a cradle, and the whole stubble was studded with sheaves and cornflowers. In another direction, shirt-sleeved men were standing on wagons, shaking the soil from their stalks of sheaves and stacking them for carrying. As soon as the foreman, dressed in a blouse and high boots and carrying a tally stick, caught sight of Papa, he hastened to take off his lamb's wool cap and, wiping his red head, told the woman to get up. Papa's chestnut horse went trotting along with a prancing gait as it tossed its head and swished its tail to and fro to drive away the gadflies and countless other insects which tormented its flanks, while two greyhounds, their tails curved like sickles, went springing gracefully over the stubble. Milka was always first, but every now and then she would halt with a shake of her head to wait the whipper in. The chatter of the peasants, the rumbling of the horses and wagons, the joyous cries of quails, the hum of insects as they hung suspended in the motionless air, the smell of the soil and grain and steam from our horses, and the thousand different lights and shadows 
which the burning sun cast upon the yellowish-white cornland, and the purple forest in the distance, the white gossamer threads which were floating in the air, resting on the soil, all of these things I observed and heard and felt to the core. Arrived at the Kulanova wood, we found the carriage awaiting us there, with, beside it, one horse wagonette driven by the butler, a wagonette in which there were a tea-urn, some apparatus for making ices, and many other attractive boxes and bundles, all packed in straw. There was no mistaking these signs, for they meant that we were going to have tea, fruit, and ices in the open air. This afforded us intense delight, since to drink tea in a wood and on the grass, and where none else had ever drunk tea before, seemed to us a treat beyond expressing. When Turka arrived at the little clearing where the carriage was halted, he took Papa's detailed instructions as to how we were to divide ourselves and where each of us was to go, though, as a matter of fact, he never acted according to such instructions, but always followed his own devices. Then he unleashed the hounds, fastened the leashes to his saddle, whistled to the pack, and disappeared among the young birch trees, the liberated hounds jumping about him in high delight, wagging their tails, and sniffing and gambling with each other as they dispersed themselves in different directions. "'Has any one a pocket-handkerchief to spare?' asked Papa. I took mine from my pocket and offered it to him. "'Very well. Fasten it to this greyhound here.' "'Gizana?' I asked, with the air of a connoisseur. "'Yes.' Then run him along the road with you. When you come to a little clearing in the woods, stop and look about you, and don't come back to me without a hair. Accordingly, I tied my handkerchief around Gizana's soft neck and set it running at full speed toward the appointed spot, Papa laughing as he shouted after me, Hurry up, hurry up, or you'll be late. Every now and then Gizana kept stopping, pricking up his ears and listening to the howling of the beaters. Whenever he did this, I was not strong enough to move him, and could do no more than shout, Come on, come on! Presently he set off so fast that I could not restrain him, and I encountered more than one fall before we reached our destination. Selecting there a level, shady spot near the roots of a great oak tree, I lay down on the turf, making Gazanus crouch beside me, and waited. As usual, my imagination far outstripped reality. I fancied that I was pursuing at least my third hare, when, as a matter of fact, the first hound was only just giving tongue. Presently, however, Turka's voice began to sound through the wood in a louder and more excited tones. The baying of a hound came nearer and nearer, and then another, and then a third, and then a fourth. Deep Throat joined in the rising and falling cadences of a chorus, until the whole had united their voices in one continuous, tumultuous, burst of melody. As the Russian proverb expresses it, the forest had found a tongue, and the hounds were burning as with fire. My excitement was so great that I nearly swooned where I stood. My lips parted themselves as though smiling. The perspiration poured from me in streams, and in spite of the tickling sensation caused by the drops as they trickled over my chin, I never thought of wiping them away. I felt that a crisis was approaching. Yet the tension was too unnatural to last. Soon the hounds came tearing along the edge of the wood, and then, behold, they were racing away from me again, and the, of hares there was not a sign to be seen. I looked in every direction, 
and Gizana did the same, pulling at his leash at first and whining. He then lay down again by my side, rested his muzzle on my knees, and resigned himself to disappointment. Among the naked roots of the oak tree under which I was sitting, I could see countless ants swarming over the parched gray earth and winding among the acorns, withered oak leaves, dry twigs, russet moss, and slender, scanty blades of grass, and surried files that kept pressing forward on the level track they had made for themselves, some carrying burdens, some not. I took a piece of twig and barred their way. Instantly it was curious to see how they made light of the obstacle. Some got past it by creeping underneath, and some by climbing over it. A few, however, there were, especially those weighted with loads, who were nonplussed by what to do. They either halted and searched for a way around, or returned whence they had come, or climbed the adjacent herbage, with the evident intention of reaching my hand and going up the sleeve of my jacket. From this interesting spectacle my attention was distracted by the yellow wings of a butterfly which was fluttering alluringly before me. Yet I had scarcely noticed it before it flew away to a little distance, and circling over some half-faded blossoms of white clover, settled on one of them. Whether it was the sun's warmth that delighted it, 